that we're in, Colossians 2. If you've got one of the green Bibles, that's page 1118. 1118. Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to read it in a minute, but um, first of all, what I'm going to do is just uh, come off the stage and... um, and a website I really recommend, the, the uh, Bible Project. Uh, if you're a life group leader or a Bible study leader or whatever, uh, they, they've made these fantastic little sort of video cartoony clips uh, which give the background and overview of pretty much every book in the Bible. So we're just going to watch the first three minutes of uh, the introduction and overview to Colossians. So if you were missed it last week with Kate here, uh, it's just going to just help us to set the letter into its context. And, uh, and it will also go through the first chapter, what we missed last week. So it, it tees up the reading that I'm going to give uh, from chapter 2 in just a few minutes. Thanks, Matt. Paul's letter to the Colossians. It was written during one of Paul the Apostle's many imprisonments for announcing Jesus as the risen Lord. And the letter is addressed to a group of people that Paul had never met who made up a church community that he didn't start. This church in Colossae was started by a co-worker of Paul's named Epaphras, who was actually from that city. And Epaphras had recently visited Paul in prison, and he updated him on how well the Colossians were doing overall, but he also mentioned some of the cultural pressures tempting them to turn away from Jesus. And so Paul wrote this letter to encourage the Colossians to address the issues that Epaphras had raised and then to challenge them to a greater devotion to Jesus. The letter's design and flow of thought are pretty easy to follow. The opening movement focuses on Jesus as the exalted Messiah. Paul then goes on to show how his suffering in prison is for the exalted Jesus. And then he addresses the pressures tempting the Colossians to turn away from Jesus. After this, he explores the new way of life that Jesus' resurrection opened up for them. So the letter opens with two prayers. Paul first thanks God that he learned from Epaphras that the Colossians have been totally faithful to Jesus, showing love for God and their neighbors, all because of the hope they have in the new creation that Jesus has in store. And so he moves on to pray that they would grow in their wisdom and understanding about Jesus. And then Paul has placed a poem here to help the Colossians and us do exactly that. It's the centerpiece of chapter one, a poem all about the crucified and exalted Messiah. It has two parallel stanzas, and it's crammed with language and imagery from the books of Genesis and Exodus, from the Psalms and the Proverbs. The first stanza explores how Jesus is the true image of God. In him, the full character and purpose of God is embodied in a human. He's the firstborn, an Old Testament phrase about Jesus' royal status over all creation. He shares in the very identity of the one true creator God. And by him, all reality, all powers and authorities, spiritual and human, have been created. It's in Jesus the Messiah that we discover the very author and king of creation. And so in the second stanza, we discover he's also the one bringing about a new creation. He's the head of a new body, which refers to Jesus' people, who are the new humanity, of which his own resurrection existence is a prototype. In him, God's glorious temple presence dwells, and so it's through Jesus' death and resurrection that God has reconciled himself to humanity, to all spiritual powers, to all of creation. It's a remarkable poem, and Paul will keep referring back to it as he goes on in the letter. 
So he first shows how the truth of this poem transforms his own experience of suffering in prison. He's being punished for announcing to the Greek and the Roman world that Jesus is the resurrected Lord and King of all. And so his suffering, he thinks, is not a sign of defeat. It's actually his way of participating in Jesus' own suffering done as an act of love. And so his hardships are actually a cause for joy. He's in prison for the surprising news that Israel's resurrected Messiah is creating a new multi-ethnic family. And more, just as the divine glory dwelt in Jesus, so Jesus dwells in and among his international family. Or as Paul says, the Messiah is in you all, the hope of glory. So that brings us to our reading, chapter 2, and I'm going to read the whole of the chapter. So Paul says, I, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who've not yet met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your sinful nature was put off when you were circumcised by Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such people also go into great detail about what they've seen and their unspiritual minds puff them up with idle notions. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God 
causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Well, um, while that's sitting in you, why don't we hear our um, transatlantic friend with his take on what chapter 2 has to tell us. Paul then addresses the cultural pressures that are tempting the Colossians to turn away from Jesus. They were confronted by a combination of mystical polytheism along with a pressure to observe the laws of the Torah. So all these new Christians, they had grown up worshiping the various Greek and Roman gods who governed different arenas of human life. And many simply included Jesus as one more deity that they could worship. There was also great pressure from the Jewish Christian community for these non-Jews to complete their commitment to the Messiah by following all of the laws found in the Torah. Specifically, he mentions eating a kosher diet, observing sacred days, and circumcision. It's very similar to the problem he addressed in the letter to the Galatians. For Paul, to give in to either of these temptations is compromise. It's a failure to grasp who Jesus really is and what he did on their behalf. The Colossians used to live in fear of spiritual powers and elemental spirits, as Paul calls them. But Jesus triumphed over these through his death and resurrection. He freed the Colossians from any obligation to them. In the same way, Jesus fulfilled on our behalf all of the laws of the Torah, which never had the power to transform the selfish human heart anyway. And so what Jesus did in his life and death and resurrection, it lacks nothing. It doesn't need to be supplemented by following the laws. He is the reality to which all of the laws of the Torah were pointing anyway. Instead of the laws, followers of Jesus have the power of his resurrection to change them, which is what he goes on to explore. Following Jesus means... Hold that one there, and uh, Lydia is going to unpack uh, bits of chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, what it means to live this new resurrected life. But what I want to do is just to, to spend just a few minutes um, unpacking the implication of those um, Greek gods and the, those who are insistent on Torah, the observing Jewish law to complete you as a Christian, and to try and show why they undermine Christian faith. And I'm also gonna try and show how, although that was relevant to them there then, how it is a, a live issue for us here now. And I'm, I'm gonna sort of finish by just handing the stage over to someone else who will give you their account of how powers and principalities can entice us away from Jesus. So more of that in just a moment. Um, we're not quite sure what the Colossian heresy was. It's a combination, as we've just heard there, of, of, of kind of Gnosticism and Judaism, Judaizers. Uh, Gnosticism is from the Greek word gnosis, 
which means knowledge. So we, we get our English word agnostic, gnosis with a silent G. So agnostic is someone, R means without, so without knowledge. I, an agnostic is someone, I, haven't got an, I don't know enough to make a decision. I don't know. I'm on the fence. Uh, but these Gnostics were full of knowledge, these Gnostic teachers. And what used to happen in all these little towns and villages where churches sprang up was that they were kind of easy prey to visiting preachers and teachers. And so they would come with their Greek-based Gnosticism, which basically, there's, 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 there's more knowledge, there's more to know, there, there are these mysteries. One of the things, if you read through the whole letter of the Colossians, you'll see time and time again, Paul uses the word, it's translated in English, full or fullness. In other words, we are made complete. He's, he's, he's tilting at these Gnostic teachers. When, you know, they, they would argue we're made complete when we have this extra knowledge, this additional insight. The Gnostic teachers would say things like, Jesus is great, but as you saw, he's one of many. And so what you need to do is access these other powers, these other authorities, and then you will be complete, you'll be full. You, you, you will be a, a, a properly spiritual person. Other strands of Gnosticism that I think probably infiltrate Colossae and therefore crop up in the letter, particularly in chapter 2, was a kind of Stoicism. Gnostics believed that all matter was evil and that uh, the spirit was good. And therefore our bodies kind of house the spirit, but our physical bodies kind of tarnish it. Uh, it's our body that is tempted by the lust of the eyes and flesh to, to dilute or compromise the spirit, the purity of the spirit. So Stoic Christians would, would argue that we need to, to do away with all things fleshly and earthly. They, they had a real struggle with Jesus as the incarnated God. God, pure spirit in a body? They, they wrestled with the, some of the core elements of Christianity. Uh, and they said, you know, as a result, no, just stay away from anything that might in some way uh, contaminate you here on earth. And I guess that sort of played into the, the Judaizers as well. Another strand of this heresy, uh, as we heard, the ones who said, no, Jesus, good, good guy, follow his teaching. But don't let go of all the traditions that we've grown up in of the observant of Sabbaths or the food laws uh, or indeed circumcision itself, a, a rite, a ritual that marks us out of God's people. So they would say, uh, if you've been baptized, fantastic, but also you need to be circumcised, you add it all on. In other, words, in other words, spiritual maturity, spiritual completion, a proper Christian is Jesus Christ and. Jesus Christ and. So again, if I can just highlight, if we can have the slide up, Matt, uh, and um, forgive me, the, the font is too small for you probably to read, but I've color-coded most of chapter two here. Uh, red is where Paul is making reference to the, the Greek philosophers, the Gnostics. In blue coming up is the Judaizers, and in green are the kind of Stoics. And you can see, if you want to sort of either follow on the screen or maybe as I read through this, following your Bibles, you can see all through chapter two, he's having a pop at these three strands of the Gnostic heresy that is compromising these young Colossae Christians. My goal, he says, is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, no longer a mystery, now being revealed. Everything you need to know is in Christ. 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. So he goes on, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive uh, through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the element spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He's the head over every power and authority. And here's, now he sweeps to the, the Judaizers, the Torah observers. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, not by some priest at the temple. And having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Having disarmed, here we are back on the Greeks again, the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival or new moon celebration or sabbath day all these torah observances just down verse 18 uh, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels which is what uh, again extreme or traditional jews would do don't let them disqualify you since you died with christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Here's the stoic bit. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, but their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body. See, anti-matter, as it were, exonerating the spirit and spirit realm. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Paul having a real go at the Colossians. And I guess if you've got your, your Bible there, it's, uh, it kind of culminates in chapter 2, verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having, first of all, cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, that's the Jews, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, there it is, a reference to the Gnostic Greek influence he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus Christ, completely sufficient. Whether you argue that you need a little bit more mysterious secret knowledge or understanding, or whether you argue that you need more ritual or more practices, Jesus and will lead you away from Jesus. It will compromise your faith in Jesus. I love this little... Um, he does a clever little play in words on, in verse 8. Um, it, it apparently was said in the Enlightenment period that one of the, the leading rational thinkers of the time, John Locke, uh, was one of his opponents wrote uh, against John Locke using his name in a play in words. He said, don't allow yourself to be locked into this line of thought. <laughs> and Paul's kind of doing the same thing here uh, with that word in verse 8 don't allow see that no one takes you captive and the word for take captive there is the Greek word that on the left there I've, it's, I've just I can't find the Greek symbols on my computer so this is just a um, uh, what's it called when you a transliteration or a thingy it's a thingy yeah thank you phonetic oh, I wanted that word thank you can I have it phonetic uh, so silagogon Synagogon, it means to take captive, but it is very like the word for synagogue, synagogon. It's just one letter difference. 
So effectively, it's like he's saying, don't let anyone synagogue you with hollow philosophy. There's the Jewish reference and the Greek reference in one little phrase. He's sitting there thinking, Tim, what, honestly, what, uh, like I said, that was for back there. It's a, Colise was not like a major town. It was a little, it was a little town, a village. It, it kind of lost its sparkle. Uh, somewhere in, in Asia Minor that was current Turkey. Paul had never even, he didn't plant the church, but Paphras did. He'd never even visited it. It's kind of this letter to, to them back then over there. Does this really speak to us today? Do we really need to be on our guards against people who might seek to compromise us things in the culture that will dilute our faith in Jesus Christ? Is the Bible really relevant today? Has it got anything to say to us today? Have you ever been allured by the prospect of some kind of other knowledge, something else, something additional, something that you didn't know. But if you did know this, you'd be the better for it. That allure, can you feel it? Let me ask you like this, the kind of phrase we've uh, acknowledged from time to time here, an acronym, FOMO, fear of missing out. You, you know, if I say that and you, the image, it, it kind of conjures up, you're on social media, you're flicking through and you suddenly see there was a party that took place. You recognize some of the people at that party. You, you know that place. You know, oh, oh, oh. And you sort of think, oh, I must have missed my... Was I invited to that? I don't think I was. didn't even know it was taking place. Uh, what's that doing in here, if we're honest? Oh. Oh. I'd like to have been... Because we hate to be excluded from something. We love to be included. I mean, even if you can't go to a wedding or whatever because it clashes with something else, you still like to be invited in on something. I want to be in on... Will I be any less of a human being if I don't go? No, but we kid ourselves into thinking, oh, I, I need to go to that. I need to be there. I need, I need, I need. And what we tell our spirit and our soul is that all the while I'm chasing a need, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, I'm not totally satisfied where I am. That Christ in me, Paul says, the hope of glory is not quite enough. And I live with that low, steady state of dissatisfaction which will feed my FOMO and cause me to go after all sorts of mysterious things and super knowledge so that I can get fullness. I think this Gnostic heresy is alive and kicking today in our culture. I think we all experience that. I experience that. I know, what, I, know what I, I know what I'm talking about here. I experience it. We all do. And Paul says, don't be synagogued. Don't be caught out. Don't be trapped. It, it's subtle. I, I'll give you an example of where, as I've been preparing this, I, I've been doing an inventory on my own life and spirituality, uh, my, my study has got a little bit more cluttered over the last sort of weeks and months and it, it needs a bit of a sort out and i kind of l looking at my study and I realise that I've got, um, on my shelves I've got a whole load of books um, and some of them are waiting to be read 
And then, um, because there isn't any room on the shelves, there's a little pile every now and then uh, uh, around the shelves of uh, another pile of books all waiting to be read. Uh, waiting to go onto the shelf where they can wait to be read. And then there's another pile next to that pile that is waiting to be on that pile, that's waiting to be on that pile, that's waiting to be on the shelf to be read. I keep buying books. I, I buy more books than I have got the time or space to, to read. They're all beautifully there with their spines glistening and intact. Why do I buy? I bet it's really virtuous. It's a good thing. I mean, they're not Mills and Boone or some trashy novel. These are kind of, you know, weighty theological books, if you don't mind. <laughs> Improving for my mind and my soul. But I'm, I'm falling for the, oh, because I saw it advertised or it popped up on a thing or I got a mail shot and I think, oh, yeah, I, oh, that, I need to read that book. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I need to read that. Oh, yeah, I need and. And actually, I'm opening up this appetite that is leading me into Mr. Bookman and someone who's not just satisfied with the knowledge that I already have and the scriptures here and Jesus. I, I, have, I have plenty. Not saying I couldn't do with reading a book or two every now and then, but do I, do I need to have so many? It, it's a good thing, but it's sliding into a God thing if I'm not careful. That's what idolatry is. It's just making a good thing a God thing. I'm not saying it's bad to go to weddings or invite parties and that kind of thing. Be on social media. This is a good thing. But is there something that's sliding it into a God thing? An idolatrous thing that's sliding us away from Jesus Christ. Just as Paul to the Colossians then, so through the Spirit, through his words to us here today, are we prone to that heresy that it's Jesus and Jesus extra and that somehow Christ is not enough maybe that as I think about um, what I need to be complete as a human being and I slide into that Jesus and it slides for me maybe books a number of things for you it could be um, my career path and career progression that actually to be really rooted and secure as Paul says here then I need my Christian faith Jesus and to pay attention to the office or the career path the possibility of promotion and so on and I'll give quite a bit of myself maybe too much of myself to that or it could be to cultivating relationships that somehow I'm not complete if I'm single even though Jesus Christ himself lived this earth as the most complete human being outside of any uh, relationship that we would recognize uh, a romantic relationship it may be that in, 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 I'm just chasing after well actually chasing after intimacy I've fallen prey to the temptation of sex or some kind of sexual immorality I've fallen by home my, underneath my own standards let alone what the Bible might say as I understand it again I, I would argue it's not actually sex it's, it's intimacy a search for intimacy and Paul says Jesus gives us everything we need he's head over everything he's in all things chapter 1 that amazing poem he's over all things he's through all things Every yearning of your heart, every fiber of your being is fully satisfied in him. So I, I don't need to chase after these heresies that purport to complete me. 
because chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, and this is well worth committing to memory so that you've got it at all times and all places. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He's taking that Gnostic language and filling it with Christ. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity, everything that you need to live, God, who is life and love and hope and glory, God, who is everything, lives in Jesus and in Jesus, you have been given that, if you like, Godedness, his life, his spirit, that satisfies you and I in every single way. pause. Uh, I'm going to invite, in just a few minutes, I'm going to invite Kat Hancock to come and tell us her story of uh, how, in a sense, the, the lure is still out there. But just a moment for us to digest Jesus Christ, the fullness of the deity, that in him I am complete and mature. My identity lacks nothing as I focus on him, as I root in him, as I embrace him. And I can recognize and eschew all siren calls of Gnosticism, of tradition. Because Jesus is my all in all. Thank you, Tim. Good evening, everyone. My story begins almost exactly two years ago to the day. I was a regular attendee at the HTB 630 service and part of a large sociable connect group. We were coming up to the summer break and there would be no connect group meetings and a lot of my friends would be away on various holidays. So the next few weeks were looking pretty empty. I had also recently split up with my boyfriend at the time and was working freelance on my small business, so was often at home on my own. It was a nice surprise then when a friend from HTB, who I hadn't seen at church for quite a while, asked to meet up for a coffee. When we met, he told me um, about an incredible Bible study course he'd been attending and how much it had changed his life. He seemed so free, almost deliriously happy, and he strongly encouraged me to think about checking out the course for myself. I was not familiar with much of scripture at all and knew that my faith until that point had been not particularly scripture-led. And so I liked the idea of spending a few weeks strengthening my understanding of the Bible. However, the sessions were twice a week and with my business getting busier, I didn't feel I could commit the time. When I told my friend that I might think about doing it next term instead, he insisted that I meet up with one of his new friends from the course anyway. He said that she was an accountant, so she could help me out with my business, and that uh, he just thought we'd get on really well. So I met up with this girl, and she was very lovely, um, but almost immediately she began talking about this course. She said that she was one of the small group mentors, uh, that she was desperate to have me in her group, and that I'd be starting the course uh, that coming Monday. Now, I'd I'd never actually signed up to the group, um, but I was wanting to improve my scriptural knowledge, And I did want to know why my friend was saying that the Bible all made so much more sense to him now. 
also feeling curious, but also rather pressured and slightly skeptical about it all, I agreed to go to the first of five introductory sessions the following week. When I arrived at the first class on a small industrial estate in Canary Wharf, it was honestly nothing that you wouldn't expect to see or hear at an alpha course. There were around 20 people, all my age, getting to know each other and tucking into an amazing spread of food, kindly prepared for us by students from another class. The atmosphere was warm and friendly and everyone was excited about getting to know the Bible. There was a proper classroom set up and our teacher, Justin, who was extremely funny and engaging, seemed to know the Bible inside out, which reassured me somewhat. He emphasized that we would only be reading from the Bible, so no other texts or interpretations, and that we wouldn't need to pay anything to attend the course. All he asked for was our full commitment. He joked about how people can be so flaky these days, cancelling plans with just a text message, and how, coming from South Africa, everyone in London just seems so busy all the time, rushing from one thing to the next and running for a tube even when there's an emptier one coming in one minute. Um, so I decided that this would be something I'd really try to commit to. And after the initial five sessions, the more in-depth three-month course didn't seem like a huge commitment in return for learning the Bible. The course was self-proclaimed to be non-denominational, which at the time I thought gave it more of an authenticity, but now realize that's actually meant a huge lack of accountability. The sessions covered a variety of topics from the, uh, the history of Christianity to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil um, and the life and works of both Jesus and Satan. As much as this examination of Satan would usually have set off alarm bells for me, it actually piqued my interest. Having grown up in a committed Christian household, my mom is actually a vicar, um, Satan had always felt like a dirty word and something that shouldn't be discussed. Hearing Justin's explanation of Satan's presence throughout the Bible and his influence on the world throughout history suddenly seemed to make a lot of sense. We were encouraged to make copious notes throughout the lessons, which we could use for private study between classes, and I really felt like I was starting to understand things a little better. After just a couple of classes, I was enthusiastically telling my friends and family about how much I was learning and how much I was enjoying reading the Bible, and I'd had, I'd had a glimpse of what my HDB friend had found so life-changing. My parents had suggested that we discuss what I was learning over dinner the day after each class, um, and initially it, it sparked some lively debate around the kitchen table as I tried to explain some of the ideas we'd been taught. Justin's teaching made so much sense in the context of the lessons and seemed to bring light to a lot of verses which people often struggle to make sense of. In fact, it was the logic of the course content that appealed to me so much, and it was refreshing to feel like I was understanding parts of the Bible which can seem so inaccessible. However, I gradually became less and less willing to share the teaching with my parents. I didn't feel like I was doing it justice, and I wasn't able to deliver it in the same charismatic way. And when my parents asked questions that I then didn't know the answers to, I just felt foolish. We'd also been advised by Justin not to try and reproduce what we were learning. He cited a verse from Revelation which says that if you add or take away anything uh, from the word when teaching scripture, you will be judged more harshly. He said that the best way we could share the teaching with our friends and families was to encourage them to come to the course themselves. 
neither of my siblings are very interested in church, and I couldn't imagine my parents um, coming to a Bible study class in Canary Wharf when we lived in Surbiton. Um, so I generally kept things to myself and became quite withdrawn as, as a result. Over the next couple of months, I kept going to classes twice a week, as well as meeting up with my mentor at weekends and doing as much private study as I could. The classes were getting increasingly longer, so often I wouldn't get home until after midnight. And as my parents asked more and more questions about the course, our usually great relationship became quite strained. I accused them of not being supportive of my trying to learn the Bible, of all things, and told them that they should be more concerned about my siblings who weren't interested at all. I was the good one. Um, as I grew closer to my classmates and more invested in the course, I stopped attending HGB altogether as we were told that the course was the only place to hear genuine truth. Now, of course, that sounds very dodgy in, you know, when I say it now, um, but I hope you can believe that in the context of weeks of intense teaching, it becomes quite a convincing argument. I also forced myself to miss family outings and cancel plans with friends if they clashed with the class. Um, we were asked to consider what God would rather we did, go to the cinema or a birthday party or devote ourselves to his word for just three months. My mindset started to change about the course when I asked what the date of our last class would be. Justin was very evasive about giving me a firm timeline and as we neared the end of our three months, I got the sense that we were nowhere near finishing. I also realized that as close as I felt to my classmates, I didn't actually know anything about them at all, uh, not even their full names. So as a true millennial, I uh, decided to do some online research and had a cheeky Facebook stalk one night. It turns out that I'm scarily good at tracking people down. Um, and uh, long story short, what I found felt both terrifying and mortifying. After a sleepless night of uh, some deep digging, I, it became clear that the course was undeniably linked to a South Korean group called Shincheonji, meaning New Heaven and Earth, which is globally recognized to be a dangerous cult. They believe that an 86-year-old called Man Hee Lee is the person to whom the meaning of revelation has been given, and that his teachings, which I'd unwittingly been being brainwashed with, were the only real truth. Neither Shincheonji nor Manhili were ever mentioned in the classes I attended, and I'm still not sure at what point this link is revealed. The group uses classic cult techniques such as love bombing, so the food and the friendly people, um, long classes resulting in lack of sleep and fatigue, and constant guilt tripping, drip feeding of information, and half-truths to make you question everything about what you and the people around you believe in or value. My whole class stops going to their churches because we'd been slowly programmed to believe that they were preaching falsehood. But I later discovered that about half of my class were in fact maintainers, people who were already fully involved with the group but were pretending to be first timers. The levels of deception that I experienced and was subjected to in the group go way beyond this. But it was heartbreaking to realize how many of the people involved had been lying all along. <laughs> The thing is, they didn't see it as lying. They saw it as their duty to keep others involved in the course, as in their eyes, that ultimately serves God's purpose. In fact, their interpretation of love thy neighbor is to bring people to the course. It turns out that you can cherry pick Bible verses to justify pretty much anything if you twist them enough and remove their context. And I still find myself having to unlearn some of their explanations of biblical passages or definitions. 
there was an obsession with revelation. And the fact that a lot of churches shy away from preaching on this book uh, makes it prime material for a group like this. The isolation and mind control that cults can bring, is, uh, can bring about is something that still scares me. In hindsight, I realized that from the very first class, we had been conditioned to prepare ourselves for criticism of the course and our commitment to it. And constant references were made to the way people treated Jesus and his disciples at the time, um, being similar to how we would be seen. Justin even joked once that people had accused him of running a cult. And of course, we all laughed at such a crazy thought. <clears throat> I suppose what I want to convey to you by telling my story is that no one is too savvy or too smart or too safe to find themselves in a similar situation. It's been said that no one ever joins a cult, you are recruited, and it has nothing to do with being gullible or weak. In fact, studies have shown that the hardest people to recruit to cults are the mentally ill, suggesting that it is precisely the logical and rational sides of a person that make, which makes them vulnerable. I'm quite sure that had I sat here a couple of years ago and heard a girl on stage talking about cults, I would have sat there and thought, oh dear, poor her, um, but I wouldn't let that happen to me. I'd see it coming a mile off. I'm not trying to scaremonger or plant fear, and I know that tonight might be some people's first time at church, so sorry. Um, <laughs> but um, it's the lack of awareness about cults that allows them to be so successful. They don't just have to be religious. They can be financial, political, health-related, loads of things. Um, and in fact, there's estimated to be about 1,000 operating in the UK alone at the moment. Um, but they actively look for young, intelligent people who are most likely to be enthusiastic in recruiting others. I was so embarrassed when I found out about the true nature of the course. Um, I'd been such an ambassador for the group and had even invited two of my friends from HTB to join. Um, but I now realize that there is no shame in my experience. I felt an obligation to let the rest of my class know about my discoveries and my decision to leave the course immediately. Though at the time, I still wasn't sure who was a maintainer and who was a genuine first-timer like me. I wrote my class a letter, which I sent to all of them on WhatsApp, and unsurprisingly received a very negative response from some of the other students, as well as the teachers, um, to whom the letter had quickly been forwarded by someone. Uh, to this day, I still don't know whether any of them left as a result of my findings. Um, there's a point where you definitely become immune to any criticism but I can only hope and pray that they did or do someday. The weeks following my leaving were quite traumatic. I suffered from a lot of anxiety and nightmares. Um, and I think a lot of people would have rejected Christianity altogether at that point. But I knew that I had been rescued by a loving God uh, who had never left me and who would use me to protect other people from falling victim. At the time, it was very difficult to show grace towards the people who had recruited me but I now realize that every single person involved is a victim, and all of them have families who love and miss them too. My parents were a huge support when I confided in them. It turned out that my mom had already done the rounds with her vicar friends, uh, expressing her concern about the change in my behavior, and they were all convinced that it sounded like a cult. The more we bring these groups to light, the more people's eyes will be open to the way that they operate. You may not think you're at risk, but how about a friend or a sibling or a flatmate. Increased awareness about cults is something that the church today should be shouting about, yet it is such a taboo subject with many churches worrying that their reputation will be harmed for discussing it. I'd like to thank Tim and Joe 
uh, for being so supportive to me over the last few months. And I feel very grateful to have found a church where openness is valued, questioning is encouraged, and there are real honest Bible studies. If anything, my experience with the cult and my recovery since have shown me more than ever that our God is mighty, he can always bring good from evil, and he is the ultimate rescuer. Amen. Thank you so much and bless you for your courage because I, I know that was not an easy uh, uh, testimony to prepare, let alone deliver. Uh, you have done a, a really significant thing, uh, freedom for you, I think, uh, I venture to suggest, and for us, just in raising the awareness. Paul himself writes in this letter of the, to the Colossians, for he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That leads into that passage about Jesus being everything that we need. Um, it, it, actually, just Kat alluded to it, but if ever you have a concern about anything going on here, uh, particularly if you have a concern about me, that's, that's the reason why we have a, a, an open leadership team. It's why we've got the PCC posted up at the back there. Talk to any PCC member or to the church wardens. Church wardens in particular are licensed by the bishop. They're not appointed by me. They're licensed by the bishop to be a kind of intermediary. And so if, there's any, if you ever have a concern with any aspect of the leadership of this church, uh, particularly a concern with me, you are to raise it with them or with a member of the PCC. And there are authorities uh, above my pay grade that will take that very seriously, particularly in this safeguarding culture. Please believe me on that. And please believe me when I say if, there's, if you have any concern, you, you must do that for your sake and for the sake of brothers and sisters sitting around and actually ultimately for mine if, I'm, if I am being deceived and uh, leading anyone astray so that we are healthy as a church uh, and so that we can pay attention to the, the spiritual forces that look to dilute Christ in us so that we can be people who know Christ and his fullness in every way. Why don't we stand together? <laughs>